Welcome, art lovers, to the SCHS Visual Art Podcast, where we are equipping creative minds to be artists of many styles and disciplines. We feature guest artist talks and other fun things to guide, inspire, and inform the work you make or want to make. I'm Tucker Webb, but a lot of you listening probably know me as Mr. Webb. Let's check it out. Hello there, and welcome to the 10th episode of the SCHS Visual Art Podcast. On today's episode is none other than Charles Clary. Charles is an impressive hand-cut paper artist who creates his own fabricated reality that explores the themes of grief, music, and science. Up close, his creations, which are made mostly of paper, to me almost look vascular or like a canyon, zoomed in with layers upon layers of color and depth. His work is somewhere in between the two-dimensional and three-dimensional world and is always very impressive and really unlike a lot of things that you normally see in art. He has several bodies of work, including pieces that use drywall, wallpaper, furniture, illustrations, etc., but you always know it's Charles Clary. Please check out his work before or while listening. You can check him out on Instagram at Charles Clary. That's at C-H-A-R-L-E-S-C-L-A-R-Y or online at charlesclary.com. This was a live chat with one of our advanced art classes. So of course you'll hear some students asking some great questions. Please enjoy this chat with Charles. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, trying to get used to the digital platform of teaching and still making work and trying to, you know, get into shows and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, busy as usual. Yeah, I understand that. Um, well, we're kind of in a, a an odd situation here because normally um, the artists that we've talked with uh, might be new to a lot of the students, but you've actually taught a few of these guys or at least been around some of these guys in governor school. Oh, nice. Or so, um, I think, what do we decide? Three or three or four students uh, have interacted with you in some way. So Sweet. not a complete stranger, but maybe new to some of us. Um, so do you just want to talk about yourself and what you do and all that stuff? Yeah. Kind of I can, and if anybody's not seen the work, I have a, a little PowerPoint kind of presentation that I can introduce the work to you from. Um, awesome. but my name is Charles Clary. I'm, I uh, had my BFA in painting from Middle Tennessee State University with a minor in illustration. Uh, took a couple of years off to experience life and decided that I wanted to go back to grad school. Um, so I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design for my MFA in painting, and about halfway through, kind of abandoned painting for hand cut paper sculptures. Uh, and once I started doing that, I had a, I had a residency in New York uh, at the Elizabeth Foundation's building uh, and really kind of fell in love with paper at the time uh, and haven't looked back since. So that's just a, a little bit about me in a nutshell. I'm, I'm currently the foundation's coordinator at Coastal Carolina University. Um, while I help manage and maintain the foundation's program. So that's drawing one, drawing two, 2D design, 3D design, and digital art making. Um, and love every minute of it. I can't detach my studio practice from my teaching practice. Uh, I feel like one feeds the other and, you know, vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And one, that's, that's why, why you're there in a way is because you love making what you make and you want to and help people uh, find what they love to make, I of guess. Of course, yeah, and encourage that kind of uh, process of art making and then conceptually driven work uh, and really kind of fostering that kind of creative spirit in my students, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about the hand-cut paper. Uh, how, did that, how did that start? I mean, because I feel like it's, uh, when you're in art school, you're doing a lot of drawing and a lot of painting and all that stuff. And that, I feel like that's not even on a lot of people's radar as like a thing that you can do. 
Yeah, so I, I started playing around with it a little bit in undergrad um, through uh, my minor in illustration and started cutting out drawings and started cutting things out of vinyl uh, and adhering that to the painting surface. Uh, and then kind of abandoned it for a little while. Uh, when I started Savannah College of Art and Design, I was very much this kind of, I don't know, graffiti-ish kind of painter that really kind of uh, enjoyed Takashi Murakami's work and this kind of flat illusionistic space. Um, and at some point, right, when I got my residency in New York, um, I decided that painting wasn't the correct voice for the work anymore. It was kind of screaming to be something more than just a depicted two-dimensional picture plane. It needed to kind of have some physicality to it. Um, so I had a res or I had an internship at a gallery in Brooklyn. Uh, and on my way home one day, uh, I got off the train and then just started walking and then passed by this really great paper store. Uh, and at the time, I'm not necessarily ashamed to say it, Martha Stewart was making some really great colored paper for scrapbooking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I bought quite a bit of it and they were 15 inches by 15 inch squares. Uh, took it back to the studio uh, and really just started playing around with it, seeing what could happen. Uh, started transferring the shapes that I was creating in my paintings uh, to this kind of two and a half D kind of component and then started layering that paper to create more of an illusionistic space. Uh, and then, you know, they started off really quite small. Uh, and then, you know, the first piece I made when I came back from my residency was a eight feet by 45 foot piece that had, I don't know, probably 80, 80 to 120 paper towers on it. Uh, and it- so not, not very big. Not very big. <laughs> it, you know, it, didn't, it didn't encompass an entire critique space. And <laughs> um, but, you know, it really, I just started getting really fascinated with it. And there was this kind of duality that was associated with painting that, I was picking my colors just like I would pick my paints, but it was with paper and my knife started to kind of emulate a paintbrush and the kind of fluidity of those kind of marks that were made, you know, from my paintings. Um, and it just seemed like just a smooth transition into paper cutting. Yeah. So now did you have, was that uh, complete like uh, Genesis? Was that completely born out of, um, just experimentation or did you have influences besides Martha Stewart um, in the, the, the paper world or was that just, uh, kind of a, just a new thing for you altogether? It was very much a, a new thing for me. It was very much brought out a necessity for the most part because the, the, the studio that I was working in, they didn't have a functioning wood shop. So I couldn't build stretchers. I couldn't build panels um, for my paintings. So I started painting on the wall um, just as a, off of a whim, uh, and then these shapes really started to develop. And then, you know, once I got onto the, to the paper stuff, then I really started to delve into the paper world and it was just at its kind of fledgling state when I was exploring this kind of new avenue. So artists like, uh, Mia Perlman or Noriko Ambe, uh, Jen Stark to some extent, um, really kind of started to to kind of pop up on my radar and knew that, you know, it was starting to, it was like starting a movement almost. Yeah. Right? And I was kind of lucky enough to be on the ground floor of that um, to where it was this, it, it was migrating from what was essentially known as craft merging over into the fine arts. So that delineation was no longer there anymore. Uh, and it kind of functioned in both worlds. Do you uh, run across work like newer work now that you can kind of see like uh, um, as sort of a grandchild of your own work or, you know, like, can you can you tell that there was like a family tree sort of of you and those people that were starting out? And can you kind of see your influence on newer artists starting out now? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's an artist named Hazel Blass um, that I think. Um, she was at the same school that I, I was, but only a couple of years later. Um, and, you know, I, I heard through the grapevine from a friend of mine who taught there that, you know, I was, I was one of the inspirations that helped get her started on her current trajectory, which was really 
quite flattering, um, you know, but I would, I would definitely say Mia Perlman and Jen Stark were, you know, the, the grandparents or the parents of kind of where my work kind of got going from. Um, I think they were really inspirational in the very, very beginning. Um, and now you've seen it really kind of transition into all kinds of different avenues. There's an artist named, um, uh, oh, why can't I remember his name? Um, oh, crud, can't remember his name. Eric Stanley, sorry, Eric Stanley, who teaches at Virginia Tech, who now is using laser cutters to create these hundred layer depth rosette windows. Um, yeah. really kind of playing on sacred geometry um, and these kind of beautiful constructs. And now is mixing wood and other things into the process. Um, there's an artist named Rogan Brown, who's doing some really fantastic kind of microcosms of these kind of Petri dish-ish forms and they're all kind of laser cut um, and there's thousands of components to the to the process so I think you know paper arts just like any other arts are starting to assimilate new technologies into the work you know all mine is hand cut um, because I think that's important for the process um, but you know I can see laser cutting and all that kind of stuff kind of coming into the fray and really kind of transitioning and transforming the power of what paper can do yeah, well, and I, I, I'm not familiar with a lot of those people that you just mentioned's work, but uh, I imagine that there's, with your work, I feel like there's such an organic feel to the way that it looks, and maybe the process is not as organic as it, as the, the product, but um, I do wonder if maybe the, the people that you're talking about doing laser cutting and things like that, if it kind of takes a little bit of the organic quality out of that. I, for me, it, 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 it takes a little bit of the magic out of it and yeah. i'm very much a big proponent of handmade work um but i'm also very aware that you know when pencils came into into existence it replaced silver point um you know when the brush was created you know it completely transformed painting when oil paints were were first envisioned you know that completely changed the idea of what a painting could and couldn't be um, you know, and then the, you know, when you get into installation art and when you get into, you know, laser cutting or water jet cutting or metals or any of these kind of things, it's just a newer form of technology mm -hmm. that can advance that kind of avenue of artwork. And I think that that's, for me, it's fascinating. Um, you know, again, I'm, 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 I will stick with hand cut just because I think that's, you know, for me, that's, that's what it's all about. Um, but I'm not opposed to the idea of technology like I've, I've explored these shapes with 3d printers and creating these kind of you know nice little thin lattice works that can be transitioned into sculptural components right that they can kind of stand on their own or they become wearable objects or they become you know something other than um, and it can also you know given a big enough bed given a big enough printer, you can actually expand the size of a lot of the works. And I think that's really fascinating and something that I'm going to probably explore in the future to some extent. Yeah. Well, I think it, one of the nice things about the art world um, is that it's not uh, binary or mutually exclusive. You can have, you know, people are still making works with the pencil, even though the paintbrush, you know, or, or uh, still making work, work with paintbrushes, even though the digital version of that exists. And it's kind of nice that people can find their own space, you know, and okay. and it doesn't make one uh, obsolete just because the other one exists. Exactly. And, I, you know, I have a lot of students that, um, you know, we, we go through sketch phases for our projects. Right. So you, you put down your first five or six ideas. We figure out which one's the best idea. Uh, and then we move forward with the final project for that. But a lot of my students are now transitioning into a digital sketchbook. And you're using Procreate or using Autodesk SketchUp or using, you know, all these kind of digital means of actually kind of drawing and creating, which I think is really fascinating and kind of speaks to the time that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to go off on that tangent. Before we do that, I did want to say or ask you, are, are you still ever painting or have you just pretty much moved exclusively to hand cut paper? Um, I still do some illustration work, you know, I, I design our Christmas card every year. So I'm, you know, I still play around with watercolors and I still play around with gouache. 
Um, I haven't done a proper painting in a good long while um, just because it's not part of my process yeah. anymore. Um, but, you know, looking back at some of my super old work, you know, the itch is there to, to create more, go back to it to some extent and see if there's a way to kind of fuse the two together. Um, yeah. But I haven't necessarily figured that quite out yet. I wonder if it might, uh, if you started painting again, if it would uh, kind of change the way that you approach the hand cut paper again. It probably would. You know, it would make me think about painting in a different way, um, as opposed to where I started with is, you know, with my painting process. You know, I think it would completely, not completely transform the way that I cut paper, but I think it would definitely influence the way that I would think about cutting paper and the interactions between the two processes. Yeah. Well, cool. I, you were just talking about uh, sketchbooks and sketching and digital and all that stuff. And I want to talk about your process, if you would be willing to share it. Yeah, but sure. before, before we do that, does anybody have any questions, any student questions so far? We got a question for you, Charles, if that's all right. You were talking about incorporating uh, other influencers' artwork into your own. How do you go about did you hear that one charles i did so like how am i how did the influences kind of influence my work without me actually copying and usurping their process is that right exactly yeah yeah, yeah. i was looking at your instagram and i saw the uh, previous post that you uh just put out and uh i saw like the I'd say it looks more like a classic. That was one thing where I saw it. You said that you looked at a lot of the costumes on the top floor. I was like, okay, you were like this. That's what you Right. But how do you get it to the point where the person who's uh, consuming the art uh, goes and isn't saying that it's the costume? Sorry, we had a bell. It's not for us to leave, though. You're fine. <laughs> no, so I, I think it's super important to let other artists influence the way that you create your work, right? Um, and it's a very delicate line between copying their work and being inspired by their work, right? I think a lot of artists, for me, their color palette has really influenced the way that I explore my work, right? I'm not the first person to ever cut paper. I'm not gonna be the last person to ever cut paper. I have my own kind of stylistic choices that I make when I, when I create the work that I create. Um, but I think for me, for the most part, is looking at artists and the possibility that those artists can give you, right? The, you have your own set of limitations for the most part that you put upon yourself. And looking at these other artists, looking at the grandiose nature of some of their work, looking at like what is possible, really kind of influences me to push my practice even further than that. Um, you know, and it, it can be difficult in the very beginning because you know you have all these artists as inspirations, and you want to kind of emulate their work and and kind of like figure out the process of that practice, right? And I think it's a good it's a good practice to kind of try to emulate their work to some extent, right? Just to kind of like nail down the whole processes of it. Um, but once you kind of mastered that, then it's time to kind of figure out how to put your own spin on it. Um, you know, and I think for me in the beginning, my paintings were getting a little too Takashi Murakami um, with, the, with the painting style that I was exploring. Um, so I brought in quite a bit of action painting to it. So I used to be a percussionist in high school and college. And, I, you know, I started, I was a double major in the very beginning. Um, and they both take so much time and energy to kind of perfect the practice that I had to actually just pick one, um, because I was, they were both going to suffer if I didn't pick one. So I picked the arts, but the musicality of, of being a percussionist never really left. So I started using drumsticks as as paintbrushes for the most part. And I was using a lot of house paint. So I would play whatever I was playing onto a surface like plastic. Uh, and a plastic doesn't necessarily melt to plastic unless there's heat involved. So I was able to peel up those, those drummings and they act as little stencils for the shapes that I use now. 
Um, so it was just all about trying to be innovative and actually bringing in another step to the process to kind of step away from the super influence of Takashi Mirakami on me. And that really kind of like set the work in motion. You know, that's where a lot of these forms come from is that, that, that practice of actually doing action painting with my drumsticks. And those shapes have really kind of permeated and, and stayed with my work throughout the years. I think you said um, <clears throat> towards the beginning of that, that uh, you're not the first person to cut paper. You're not going to be the last person to cut paper. Right. And it, it sometimes I think it feels hard to come up with original things that haven't been done before. But would you say that it's beneficial in a way to, uh, if you find yourself maybe being too influenced by one specific area, just like try to find more influences because if you're influenced by a hundred artists, uh, heavily influenced by a hundred artists, it's not going to necessarily look like one of those artists. Whereas if all of, if all you're looking at is one artist's work, then it might emulate their work more. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Like you, you guys have the benefit right now of being at like a golden corral buffet of art, right? <laughs> with modernism, postmodernism, impressionism, postimpressionism, Baroque, you know, so many isms at your disposal, right? You can pick a little bit of this, you can pick a little bit of that. Throw it you can go back for seconds. Exactly. And then you can create something brand new based off of all these things that have existed in the past, right? You're, 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 it's, it's like this kind of alchemical way of creating, um, which I think is super fascinating, right? And, you know, paper artists are not the only artists that I look at. I look at painters, I look at installation artists, I look at sculptors um you know it's all over the place for the most part and then kind of how to bring all those things together to create your own i guess style you know and i'm, I'm very careful about style because people want to get the style so quickly yeah um that they they kind of forego the process of developing a style right you just don't kind of like you don't just land on a style you go through various processes to get to a way of creating that then becomes your style and you got to be very patient with it it's one of those things that you really can't rush kind of thing i uh i've heard people use the word voice before and i kind of like that it's like it it's very similar to style but it's uh i don't know it just it can be a little bit more personal and yeah. not just be a an aesthetic sort of um exactly but cool well hey let's talk about process Okay. Um, like you just want to walk us through what, what a piece looks like from start to finish. And I know that it changes probably a little bit, but like, if you think of an average piece, what, what would you say is kind of your starting point and then kind of walk us through how that works with the, cause hand cut paper is probably not something that most of us are well-versed in. Right. Right. So I've, you know, I've got a pretty labor intensive process for the most part. Um, so there's a couple of, I have multiple different bodies of work. So I have my drywall wallpaper work. I have my framework. I have my drawings. I've got my VHS slipcase covers. Um, and I've got this new kind of free form ish kind of, uh, process that I'm, I'm doing now. Um, so they all kind of start in a very similar vein. So, you know, I'll make, let's say, we'll, we'll say my drywall work. So I will make a pristine or a pristine stretcher, right? So just a frame for the work uh, and then cut drywall to fit that frame and then screw that into place, mud up the holes, let all that dry. So just like if you're actually drywalling a, a, a building, right? So once that's all dry, I use wallpaper paste and then found wallpaper put the paste down, put the wallpaper down, smooth out any bubbles that may have occurred during that process, and then let that dry for three, four hours. Um, and then comes the fun part, right? Which is to destroy it uh, with various different size hammers, right? So I'll bash into it, manipulate it with my hands uh, to kind of create the opening that I want within that, that piece. And then that opening really informs what the paper cuts are gonna look like. So once I have that opening, I'll put a piece of paper in from behind, right? So there's a cavity in the back, you should put the piece of paper in. And then I'll trace in about a 16th of an inch to an eighth of an inch from that opening and trace it in just ever so slightly smaller than the original opening. Uh, and then I'll cut that shape out. 
Now that first layer informs what the second layer is going to look like. So I start subdividing that layer into the different organic components. So usually that first layer has two or three cuts. And then the third layer has six to 10 cuts and then so on and so forth until I hit about 15 to 20 layers deep. Uh, and then once I excavate all that out, then I reassemble those, those sheets of paper using uh, illustration board or mat board as my spacers. So they're about an, an eighth of an inch thick or so, or maybe a 16th of an inch. So it just gives a little bit of a gap between each layer. So it creates a little bit more of an illusionistic space. And the glue that I use is an archival acid-free, linen-free glue. It, so it won't uh, tint the paper over time, right? So if you use a glue that's got acid in it, it's gonna turn the paper brown over time as it leaches into the paper. Um, and it's a super strong fabric glue that, that I use. Um, so it's water resistant as well. And then I'll assemble that stack and then glue it in from behind and then, then it's finished. Um, what's really fun, it's a very intuitive process. So there's really no sketching beforehand. You know, the only kind of sketching that I do right now um, might be how to map out the openings that I'll kind of bust into the drywall itself. Do I want it to be a vertical? Do I want it to be horizontal? Do I want there to be multiple openings or one opening? Um, so that's, that's in a nutshell, the process of the drywall work, which also translates into the framework and, and any of the other pieces that I make. Yeah, I love the improvisational kind of responsive uh, approach to that. I mean, I, I do talk about sketching a lot with these guys, but, you know, for some things, it just it's it makes a lot more sense to uh, work as you go, sort of. But I, I think it's a good time if you want to show us an image or, or two or whatever you have handy, um, just so that whatever you just talked about makes a little more sense to those that aren't familiar. Yeah, cool. Let me can I share my screen? Is that okay? Yes, you can. Oh, we will go PowerPoint. So I'll show you some of my installations. Okay. Uh, and then I'll show you um, some of the VHS work, some individual work, some detail works, and then I'll show you some of the new stuff that I'm working on. Um, cool. so this is a series called Memento Mori or Memento Mori Diddle. So a lot of my titles come from the mixture of musical terminology and microbial terminology. Because I also wanted to be a, a, a microbiologist when I was younger and then the danger of all that. So I'm still like super into science and all those kind of things. Um, but this work kind of stemmed from me losing both of my parents in 2013 uh, to smoking related cancers. And I really started thinking about the things that are left behind, right? Um, so uh, I was really influenced by American Gothic. I was really influenced by uh, Southern home culture where you have picture walls. So every single one of these frames is found uh, and then each one of them has a paper cut in them. So I'll just give you just kind of a, a quick view of this. This was probably eight feet by 140 feet-ish and was comprised of about 350 found frames. This is a smaller version of one of those installations. This one's about eight feet by 35 feet and had about 80, 89 to 90 frames in it. This one was an art fields piece, which is a competition in the and for Southern states. Uh, again, this one had about 80, 80 pieces in it, the largest being probably four foot by five foot thereabouts. And there's a mixture of drywall work and just flat work. I'm starting to incorporate the body into some of these pieces. Again, this kind of uh, ephemerality of existence, right? Memento mori is remember you will die. Memento vivere is so remember to live. Um, so, you know, as I was going through this kind of traumatic experience, I really started thinking about my own mortality and my own existence as well. This was another installation that's about eight feet by 140 feet thereabouts. This one was a recent installation, it had 355 frames in it. So I, I do love to work in multiples. Just some detail shots of those. And then I'm gonna show you some singular pieces, right? So this is a very large frame piece. It's about four feet by five feet thereabouts. Right, and one singular opening with the drywall. 
Um, again, 15 to 20 layers deep of paper. And there's detail of how kind of intricate they get. You know, I love like glam. I love kind of crazy blown out colors. So you can see a little bit of glitter in this one. So I've got a ton of glitter paper and a bunch of shiny paper. And, you know, when I go to a scrapbook store, they look at me like I'm crazy because I come up with a stack that's like a foot deep of paper and they have to count it all. Here's another one. And all of these are titled Memento More or Memento More Diddle Movement Number Whatever. So I think I'm up to about 600, 700 now. Um, the amount that I work, I'm a bit of a, of a workaholic for the most part. More details for you. You can kind of really see the aggressiveness of the drywall kind of uh, balanced out by the delicateness and the fluidity of the paper, which is something I'm really interested in. Try to document. I would assume there's quite a bit of uh, thought that goes into color choices. Is there that is. just kind of in response to where you're putting the paper or? So it's, it's in a response to the, the, the frame itself and the wallpaper that I choose. Right, so I want them to kind of have this kind of collaborative uh, conversation with one another. Um, and I want the paper to really kind of stand out. Uh, a lot of it is, has come from electron microscope images of cancer um, and how under certain light um, resonances, they, they look quite a bit different and quite beautiful. But it, and if you didn't know what it was, then you could look at it as a beautiful object. But then once you know what it is, then you know the kind of catastrophic outcomes that, that, that can happen from, from the disease itself. So I'm also super into pop culture. Uh, this was an installation I did um, last summer and it was called Be Kind Rewind. So all of these are found VHS slipcases that the VHS tape has actually been replaced with a paper sculpture that's the exact same dimensions as a VHS tape. Um, just in case you don't know, VHS is the thing that came before DVDs and digital downloads. They may not know DVDs anymore. Oh my gosh. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's supposed to mimic a mom and pop shop, right? Uh, and it, it deals a lot with childhood trauma. It deals with the notion of, of movies acting as surrogate parents or babysitters for the most part. Um, and the color choices have everything to do with the movie in and of itself. So there were a thousand VHS slipcases in this installation. Um, yeah, a thousand of them. Kind of crazy. Only a thousand. Only a thousand. How? <laughs> it ended up. Go ahead. What? How long does it take to do one? If you um, had to guess, I know it's probably one, different. One VHS slipcase can take anywhere between thirty minutes and forty-five minutes, thereabouts. Okay. So, and what about a uh, what about a drywall piece? I mean, a, a lot of that's probably uh, waiting time while uh, mud is drying and wallpaper paste is drying and stuff. But how long would you say from start to finish generally? From start to finish, you, I could probably get a drywall piece done in about eight hours. And that's with dry time, with the wood glue, making the stretcher, cutting the drywall, mounting the wallpaper, waiting for the paste to dry, busting the hole and then doing the paper cuts. If we're just talking paper cuts, it could be anywhere between an hour and four hours, depending on the, the how big the piece is. Would you say you're much handier around the house since doing the drywall pieces? Uh, I am, like I, I had- Or more destructive, maybe. When I started the drywall series, I bought a bunch of drywall books, like to figure out how to do all this kind of stuff and how to make it permanent. You know, I, I use brand new drywall. I don't use anything that's been scavenged just because I don't want to worry about mold or like mm -hmm. uh, degradation of the material at all. So it's all brand new stuff meant they're manipulated to look like it's been ripped out of a house. Yeah. What do you do for your hands, Charles, your wrists? So I, I have found ways to actually not necessarily use my, my hands as much. So the, all the cutting comes from my shoulder and my elbow. So I have much larger range of motion. Um, and I use, if anybody can see this, I use a triangular rubber gripped X-Acto knife uh, oh. for comfort. Uh, it's called a Fisker's ergonomic craft knife. 
Um, so it's got a really nice rubber grip on it that saves my hand a lot of grief. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I get my students these uh, every semester. We have student lab fees that we can use for our students. And I make sure, because we do so much cutting in our, in our 2D design class, then I make sure I get them that particular knife. Nice. I don't have one of those and I think I need to get one. Oh, get them. They're great. I mean, they're a little bit more than a, a normal knife would cost. So a normal X-Acto knife is about two, 250, 290, somewhere around there. A Fisker's ergonomic craft knife will run you about 699 thereabouts. I'm uh, a lot of these like random questions are popping in my head, but how, how often do you go through a blade? So it can be, I can get through a piece sometimes, depending on my cutting mat, whether or not I've, it's, you know, a super old cutting mat that's got a lot of dings and wear and tear to it. But usually for a piece, it's anywhere between two and three exacto blades. You want to try to keep okay. them sharp um, because once, once they get dull or once they break, they start pulling and tugging the paper. So then you get really rough edges uh, and you get less smooth iterations of your cuts. Here's some more, just so you can kind of see some of the detailed pieces of these guys. These are all found VHS, uh, local thrift shops, Goodwills, eBay. Are those the same places that you're finding uh, frames and things, found yeah. frames? Yeah. So I, I'm like an 80-year-old man. I go antiquing quite often, or I did before all this you know, went down. Um, but yeah, I would visit the antique shops and Goodwills and thrift stores at least once a week. So you can see a few more. Yeah, I'm a big image guy. And the things that I can't find VHS for, I get uh, reprinted posters for. So Stranger Things and Rick and Morty, you know, you can't get VHS for those. Um, so I try to find ways to bring in new pop culture into the conversation. Um, so these are 11 inch by 17 inch movie posters um, that I'll cut into as well. Very cool. And then this is the new series that I'm working on. Um, so it's really kind of more organic, kind of blobular, amoebic-ish forms that are cut from MDF and then layered with decorative paper or wallpaper. And then the backs are painted very vibrant, kind of crazy colors. That way the shadow kind of reflects the color. So it's not just a normal kind of gray-ish shadow. It has a, a, a tint to it to some extent. Let's see, you can kind of see these a little bit. Some of them get fairly large. This one's, you know, two foot by four foot. You know, crazier, kind of more blobular forms that I'm starting to experiment with. Different kinds of wallpaper, you know, grandma wallpaper or flocked wallpaper. Um, so it's got a nice textural kind of feel to it. And that kind of gives you an overview of the work that I'm, I'm making currently. I love that. Um, let's let's open it back up for questions for a second. And then I've got some more things if you if you have time to talk yeah, about. I've got plenty of time. I got I have a class at one forty, so we got plenty of time. All right. So, how long did the VHS installation take? So the installation itself, or all the artworks for it? Like all the artworks to build into. How long did it take to make all of the artworks to put into the VHS installation? So it took about a year to get all of those done. And it was me kind of going off and on between working on the VHS and working on the other work. So probably about a year. Sorry if you hear a vacuum. That's okay. <laughs> Got to keep those floors clean. Um, all right, anybody else have a question? We got a question here. Um, so on your Instagram, uh, you posted a couple pictures of the series that you abandoned with the floorboards. Um, the series that you abandoned with the floorboards, you posted it on Instagram. Oh, yes. Uh, so I'm actually coming back to that series. Um, you know, I've got somebody recently that was really kind of enamored by them and um, wants a Beetlejuice inspired one. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do another of those panel pieces. Again, like I'm so frenetic with the way that I work, so I can't 
yeah, I'll spend a couple months on one body and then that gets boring or it gets tedious or it gets a little less in, uh, engaging. So to keep everything fresh, I'll bounce to a different series. Um, so those, the floorboards really kind of had to do with memory and this idea of revitalization of, of a house or saving the memories of a house. So all of those floorboards came from my mother-in-law's grandparents' house. So now I have a bunch of these floorboards sitting in a, my wood shop. Um, so repurposing those into something brand new and something much more vibrant, I think is very appealing and kind of fits right up the alley of the work. Um, but I do abandon series pretty quickly. Like, you know, I just, I don't know why, um, but I always find myself coming back to them eventually, right? There's something fascinating about it. There's something worthwhile. There's something that, you know, I'll think about later on uh, after I've not done that series for a while that I want to bring back to it. Um, so I think the floorboards are coming back, I think. Right. So is the process for the floorboards similar to your drywall pieces? It, it is. So there's a, a stretcher in the back, you know, made of one by fours or one by threes, depending on how deep I want to go with stuff. And then lots of wood glue, there's tongue and groove with those wood floor bits. So you gotta kind of wood glue those little slats and then piece them together and then nail them to the, to the surface in the back. So it's a little bit more of a tedious process of like really kind of finding out how people lay floors down. Um, and you know, how the process is a little different for me because I don't have that substrate of like floorboards, like a, like a you know, quarter inch plywood or something underneath it you know I'm just working with a very small rectangular uh, support structure so I got to make sure that I map it out correctly that way the nails when I hit them in hit that structure uh, and then I'll use a roto zip which is a kind of a steroid-ish version of a dremel uh, and then map out the opening and then slowly cut that out awesome we have any more quick questions or not quick questions? Okay, uh, Charles, can you can you give us a? We, I don't think we've talked about this with a uh, an artist. We've had a few artists with us, but I don't think we've talked really about kind of the process of uh, going about um, working with a gallery or or um, you know the beginnings of an exhibition like. Uh, how, do, how does that process normally start? Like, are you approaching gallery spaces? Are they approaching you? How does that work? I've done it a couple different ways. So I still submit to a lot of group exhibitions or for solo exhibitions, uh, whether it's a university gallery or a, a, a for-profit gallery. Um, the two galleries I'm with right now, I was lucky enough to be approached by them, which is a really nice kind of way of it happening. Um, so uh, the one gallery in Philadelphia is called Paradigm Gallery, and uh, they invited me to be in a group show, and I had a, a piece or two in that group show, and it sold, which was fantastic. Uh, and then they were thinking about going to an art fair in New York that was solely devoted to paper. Um, so that's works on paper, paper cutting, uh, book arts, those type of things. And I messaged them and I said, hey, you guys go into Art on Paper this year. You know, I think that'd be really quite fun. And they were like, yeah, I think your work would do really well there. Um, so they took me there um, that year and then the work did, did really well. It was a lot of the framework and the drywall work. Uh, and then that led to representation by them. So it was a very kind of slow process of a relationship developing. Um, yeah, the same kind of thing happened with my gallery in Texas. It's called RO2. Um, and yeah, I was in a group show and then they said, hey, we'd like to continue working with you. You know, how do we kind of make that happen? Uh, and there's, you know, contracts that you have to sign. Most of them are either non-exclusive or semi-exclusive contracts. So if you're in a semi-exclusive contract, they represent you in that region and within 150 miles to 250 miles within that region. Um, so you can't show with another gallery within that, you know, perimeter space. Um, and then uh, a non-exclusive contract is kind of a one-time showing kind of thing. They don't represent you, but they are showing you for this limited amount of time. 
And then there's the, the big one for blue chip galleries, which is an exclusive contract where they are the sole representative of your work. And I don't have any of those. I think they, they limit you and only are kind of reserved for the big names within art. Um, but again, it's a very slow kind of process, right? Can't rush it. Um, there's lots of, of websites that have open calls for group shows or juried exhibitions. Uh, I use Art Deadline quite a bit. I just got into two or three shows from, from them posting stuff. Uh, and it's a good resource for exhibition opportunities. Awesome. That sheds, sheds some light on that whole, uh, I feel like sometimes it's kind of mysterious, you know, you, it you see very, work in galleries and stuff, but not necessarily how it gets there. So, um, yeah, it's very, it's, it's a game just like anything else, I guess. Um, and it's a lot of hard work and, you know, most galleries are a 50, 50 cut cut. So whatever you price your work, you get half the gallery gets half. Um, there are some galleries and very few that are on a 60, 40 split. So the 60 goes to the artist, 40 goes to the gallery, but those are so few and far between that the, that the gallery standard is 50, 50, mm -hmm. um, you got to factor that into pricing. You got to factor that into like, is it worth it? Um, and you know, I think, I think it is, they, they have the marketing, they have the space, they pay the lighting, they pay for all the food and beverages at the exhibition. They pay for all the promo material. Um, and you get quite a good press from it. Yeah. That's, I was going to mention that it seems like that's, that's a whole big part of it is that you're being exposed to so many people that may not have been familiar with your work before that it might make that 50% worth it. So, yeah. um, well, speaking of a lot of work, you mentioned being a workaholic, um, what, uh, I had a question and now I've, it's left me. Um, what do you do? Okay. So, you know, your work kind of follows a theme a lot of times and, or, you know, it kind of all feels um, in the same family. And so you probably kind of know what you're doing when you're going in and because your work is so responsive. Do you ever run into like artist block sort of, or is it, is, does your work lend itself to not, not having that? I think it, it lends itself to not having that only because I have multiple bodies of work, right? I think if I was doing one thing all the time over and over and over again, which, which I do in, in essence, um, you know, I think it might get a little tiresome, but because I have so many different bodies of work, when I get that feeling of block or when I get that feeling of being exhausted with the work, I can move to another body of work, bring something new, exciting and energetic to that body of work and kind of have this new kind of renaissance of an idea that will help propel it forward. Um, I haven't, you know, I, I do take time off, right? And then, you know, over the Christmas break, I took about three weeks off. I didn't make any work um, just because you, you need that sometimes. You need to kind of like reset your brain uh, and just step away from the work for a while. Um, and I think that it really rejuvenates the process when you come back to it. Agreed. Well, and that kind of all comes back to uh, abandoning work or a series or something. If you're not feeling it, you can always just kind of drop that for the time being and then move on to something else and, and go I back. I always put it on the back burner. I never throw anything away. I don't like crumple it up or destroy it. You know, I let it sit for a while. Because again, it might speak to me in a much more compelling way, three, four, five months from that point. Um, so again, I have, we have one room in our house right now that's kind of solely dedicated to storage of all the work that I make. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'd like to come back and sit with it for a little while. You know, just like you'd sit with a friend, I'd sit with my work for a little while and kind of let sure. things happen. Sounds you know, psychotic to some extent, but like, you know, sometimes you got to sit with the work for a little bit. <laughs> I like that. Um, what do you, do you have any advice? Um, you know, it seems like you kind of just fell into the, the cut paper world. You talked about, you know, painting and illustrating before, and then you just kind of started experimenting with that. Um, for these, for the students that maybe are like, you know, I like to draw, I like to paint, I like to, you know, 
throw on the wheel with ceramics, but like, I'm not sure which path to pursue. Do you have any uh, tips or advice for that? Like choosing a path as an artist? Uh, so in the very beginning for me, I'd be open to it all, right? Really kind of dip your toe into everything that you possibly can, right? Get in the process of something every day, whether it's a doodle or a sketch or, you know, it's 30 minutes in a sketchbook or it's 30 minutes painting or it's, you know, 30 minutes on a wheel, you know, everything kind of like correlates to everything else. Um, and the more that you expose yourself to different possibilities, the more ideas can flourish from those, those opportunities. Um, you know, I was always a big proponent. I still tell my students, don't necessarily pigeonhole yourself as one thing or the other. Um, I, I like to use the overarching term that you're an artist, right? You're not necessarily a painter or a drawer or a sculptor or a ceramicist, a paper cutter, you're an artist. And everything right now is at your disposal. Um, so be, be, be explorative about it, right? You never know. You're not going to be great at something right when you started, but if you stick with it for a little while, you know, you're going to start to develop that skill set that's going to make you proficient at that particular kind of thing that you're doing. Um, but like, you know, don't, don't try to pigeonhole yourself too soon. Um, you know, it, again, you know, I, I was a painter for the longest time and now I'm like a two and a half D artist, right? I don't really fit in the 2D world. I don't really fit in the 3D world. I'm somewhere in between. Um, and yeah, I was fortunate enough to have mentors in college that really kind of um, encouraged that process, right? Because I could still talk about my paper cuttings as paintings, uh, even though that they didn't use the traditional form of painting as like, you know, to denote what I was doing. Um, and they were painters themselves, but they saw the, the possibilities that, you know, what I was doing, how it could really evolve the notion, the idea of what painting could be. Yeah. Well, and we talk a lot about uh, doing things that you're not necessarily good at uh, or outside of your comfort zone so that you, um, you know, you may be, even if you don't like to do that thing, it might open some doors or some ideas or possibilities that you didn't even know that you were good at or had interest in. And one yeah. thing can kind of inform the other. Yeah. I should say, I talk a lot about it and they uh, either listen or sit there and wish I would stop talking, but... <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, you know, make yourself uncomfortable, right? I think that's the best way to learn because then you're going to get so frustrated that you'll either give it up or you're going to figure it out. And nine times out of 10, you're just going to figure it out. Um, and I think that's super important, right? It, it gives you self-motivation. It gives you self-drive. It, it really kind of works your brain in a different way. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. Well, do we have any other student questions? We got another student question. We will open it up here. Um, you're talking about uh, getting into museums or uh, art shows. Uh, how did you, how did you, in a sense, uh, bring the awareness to your art? Because paper cutting is something that a lot of us do. But how do you bring awareness uh, to your art to get to the point where museums and art shows are? That's a good question, right? Because it's hard. It's really hard. You have to be your own marketer. You have to be your own kind of person when it comes to all this kind of stuff. Um, so for me, a digital presence is super important. I have a website. I have a Twitter. I have a Tumblr. I have an Instagram. I have a TikTok. I have all these kind of things. Um, and yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm still working on TikTok. I'm not, I'm, you know, <laughs> My wife has figured it out. I have not. These guys uh, can probably give you some tips if you want to have a Q&A with them. After yeah, they're done. They, could, they could teach me a thing or two. Yeah. Um, but for me, digital presence is super important. So I update my website on a regular basis. Uh, it's charlesclary.com. So it's not anything crazy. It's my name is associated with every single handle that I have. So if you're looking for me on Instagram, it's Charles Clary. If you're looking on, for me on Twitter, it's Charles Clary Art. If you're looking for me on Facebook, it's just Charles Clary. I mean, it's it's that name recognition to make it super easy to find you. Uh, and then it's just beating the streets, right? I, I When I was in grad school, I got an offer from a gallery in Nashville that they wanted to include me in a, a three-person exhibition. And I said, yes. 
right? And part of that was I got um, told by a college professor, always have enough work on hand that you could have two solo shows at any point in time. And I think that's probably the best advice as a professional artist that I've ever gotten because I don't have to say no because I don't have the work for it. I have enough work at any point in time to be in multiple solo shows and multiple group shows. Um, and that just comes down to work ethic. It comes down to drive. It comes down to just being in it every day, all day. Um, I post to Instagram pretty much every day at around the same time. Um, and that kind of gets my followers into the groove of knowing when I post and when to look for my posts. Um, I know algorithms and all that kind of stuff has kind of changed a little bit, um, but it's still, it's the best kind of practice for me. Um, and I also have a business account or a professional account with, with Instagram. So I can actually look at analytics so I can see how far my reach is, who I've reached, what the demographic of those that I've reached, I can see who's liked it, who's not liked it, all those kind of things, just so I can be better in control of how to use my marketing skills as an artist. Um, but it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. You know, I've got my, my Instagram connected to my Facebook and Twitter for the most part. So when I post to one, I post to all. Um, there are, you know, programs that you can get that will automatically set up posts for you during the week. So you can set up a weekly schedule of, of posts um, and then engage with your followers, right? Engage with them. If they comment, comment back or like their comments, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough, but you got to be your own marketer. Um, and try to use all the tools at your disposal because you guys have way more than I did when I was your age or, you know, a little older. Uh, you know, I still remember the day that I had to get slides made of my work and everybody's like, what's a slide? <laughs> um, and it's, you know, projectors and all that kind of stuff. And you actually had to go to a gallery to submit a portfolio uh, in person uh, and maybe get lucky enough that someone will say, yeah, I'll take a look at your portfolio. Now you just have online submissions. So if you take good photos of your work and document it appropriately, um, you know, the world is at your fingertips for the most part. I love the advice of uh, having enough work for two solo shows. I think that's, I mean, it's not easy to do, especially in this stage in these guys' art uh paths but i think that it's it's a good thing to kind of look towards and and right. having the head for sure especially uh, develop a body of work right and then you can actually kind of not farm it out but you can market it more proficiently if you've got enough of it right yeah. but even students now have really kind of good opportunities for student exhibitions governor's school for the arts all these kind of things can help benefit the way that you think about your art and how you develop your kind of artistic style. Absolutely. Any more student questions? One more, yeah. Victor's got all the questions. I appreciate it. Good, yeah. You said that you went to college initially, then you went back again. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you decide to go back? And then also, when you were out of college, uh, how did you continue your learning? you uh, said that uh, you should always continue like, learning about different types of arts and stuff like that. Right. Were there resources or websites that you would use or how did you go about it? Yeah, so I mean, I, I kept in the art world as much as I could. So I was on highflutos.com or uh, thisiscolossal.com, beautifuldecay.com, juxtapose.com. I was, I was still trying to like absorb as much art as I possibly could. You know, I was looking at art forum magazines, art in America, you know, I was all over the place. Um, and in that two year period, I was a Verizon wireless call center rep. Um, so I was the one that you called angrily because your phone didn't work. And then I had to figure out why your phone didn't work or your bills were so high. Um, and the grind of that, the, the just the kind of that nine to five or five to nine or whatever kind of job was just not for me. Um, you know, I, I could see it like sucking the life out of me. So after about a year of doing that, which helped immensely, it was a job. I was making decent money. I could buy art supplies. I could submit to exhibitions. Um, but after a year of that, I was like, this is not what I want for myself. Right. 
Um, so at that point, I, I really kind of had a hard conversation with myself. I had some hard conversations with really good friends at the time um, that were very encouraging of me going on to get my MFA in painting. Um, because it also opened the door for me to be able to teach, which was another kind of big passion of mine. I, I used to teach high school percussion for a while and I've taught art classes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I just fell in love with the aspect of teaching. Um, so an MFA is a terminal degree in the arts. So it, it opened the door to me, for me to be able to teach college, which is my end goal for me was, was to be able to do that, to become a professor. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, it was a weird two years, uh, but you know, I still stayed self-motivated to make that work. I put it into a routine. Like when I got off of work, I'd spend an hour or two painting and drawing and then I'd relax. And then the next day I'd still devote an hour or two to making and then, you know, relax and just got into a routine of doing that on a daily basis. Um, so it just became part of my, my, my daily activities. Awesome. Um, Charles, these guys leave. I know you have class soon and these guys leave us uh, in, a, in about 10 minutes. Can I ask you two quick like speed around questions real quick? Okay. So uh, do you have a, a project or even a specific piece that stands out to you as like kind of your, your proudest achievement or your, you know, something that you um, look at the most fondly or was most enjoyable to make or anything like that? Yeah, I think there's two pieces. The the one that just came down in Lake City, South Carolina, which was eight feet by 140 some odd feet. And that was 355 found frames in one space. I think that that was for me quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, think about that amount of work and for it to work together so well and have it be received by the viewers so well. I think it was a kind of a monumental moment for me. Um, the other piece is the most sentimental piece. It's the, I think it's one of the proudest pieces I have was a piece that I did after my parents or after my mother specifically passed away. You know, I wanted, I stopped making artwork for a while because I was so kind of like taken with grief. Uh, and then the first piece I made coming back from that was an eight foot by 45 foot piece that commemorated every day from her diagnosis to her passing in paper sculpture. So there were 274, 274 towers uh, in that installation. Each tower was about 15 to 25 layers deep. Um, and it was very kind of uh, coral reef-ish. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was a very cathartic piece to make. It took six and a half months to complete. Um, and it's still one of the more the proudest accomplishment that I've done and, and it meant the most to me as well. Beautiful. Uh, okay. Last question. These guys are 16, 17, 18 years old. If you could go back uh, to 16 or 17 year old Charles back in time and tell yourself one thing to help, help you in your art path. Uh, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but if you can kind of condense that into a, a thought that you could tell yourself, what would it be? Uh, don't be so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> we all need that one. Uh, you know, I didn't draw a ton. Like, you know, I, I drew enough to get by and that, you know, that I showed potential, uh, but it wasn't part of my everyday. Uh, and to just absorb as much as you possibly can. Like back in the day, I knew every movie, every side character of every cartoon, of every whatever. Uh, every musician that I was fond of and the band people's names and all that kind of stuff. But then you asked me, like, name me a contemporary artist that's living and working today. Blanks. It would be, you know, I like Da Vinci and I like, you know, Van Gogh and I like all these dead people. Uh, but I couldn't tell you an artist that was working today. And I think, I think putting yourself in the mix of all that, right? Um, checking those art websites every day for new artists or even going through your Instagram and, and liking other artists posts, uh, I think is a good way to start developing a voice and, and really kind of putting your name in the hat for this profession. Um, and just, just be a sponge, like soak it all up. You know, I, I know that sounds like a, you know, a, uh, one of those self-affirming cat posters, but you know, be a sponge, absorb as much as you possibly can because it's only going to benefit you in the long run.
I think we need a cat poster that says be a sponge in the art room. Um, well, and luckily that sort of thing is easier now than ever. I mean, you're right. Instagram, you can colossal and juxtapose and all of those high fructose, they all have Instagrams and they're, they're just giving you artworks every day that you are probably not familiar with. And so, um, I, I agree that absorb it and, and sponge it up for sure. Well, Charles, seriously, can't thank you enough for being here and just talking with us today. It means a lot to me. I think it probably means a lot to these guys. Um, and what's that? I appreciate the opportunity. It means a lot. For sure. And I'll, I'll let you know, or I'll let them know where to find your work and all that stuff. Uh, I know you mentioned several of the places, but um, yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to me for an hour. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Have a good one, Charles. All right. You guys too. See ya. See ya. Thank you so much again to Charles Clary for taking some time to chat with us. It really means the world, and I think we all got so much out of hearing what he had to share. It's amazing how each artist we talk to can discuss similar topics but approach them so differently because of their own experience in art making. Please don't forget to look for Charles's work. You can find it on Instagram at Charles Clary or online at charlesclary.com. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or have artist suggestions for this podcast, you can email at schsvisualart at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at schsvisualart. Until next time, Keep creating.